Imagine you are unafraid. Well, okay. You're afraid, but you're doing it anyways because you're more afraid of not doing it. Imagine making your own rules, your own playbook, your own red light, green light on everything in your life. Your beauty, your body, your health, your success, your entire freaking life. Imagine feeling fully heard and fully seen and exactly who you are, leaving no part of yourself uncovered. If you're ready for that, then you are ready for taking up space the podcast. Here, we are having the tough conversations and we're ready to heal our trauma. Not only are we sharing our stories, we are owning them big time. In this space, we embrace ourselves fully, owning our bodies as they are, owning all of our uniqueness. No more playing it safe, no more staying quiet, and no more letting society or diet culture call the freaking shot. It's time we take up the space that is meant for us and make our own rules, define our own beauty, and define our own freaking lives. We all have space on this earth meant for us. We all have a story, a passion, and a purpose. And they're meant to be shared. They're meant to be heard. So let's take up space. Hey guys, so you're probably wondering where the heck all the stories have been and all of the beautiful, lovely individuals on the podcast sharing their story and their message. Well, you know, if you've been listening to the last couple episodes, you know my laptop decided to be cruel as ever. Um, So during that time, they kind of took a backseat, but we're back and we're better than ever. Um, And I'm so happy to be sharing this story with you because Sharon's message with her story is just so powerful it is it is something that just needs to be shared for women across the entire globe it does not matter where you are with your body image and your your relationship with food and your body um but but you need to hear this because it's very eye-opening and it's just a message that needs to be heard now sharon is sharing her story today and she is just a fellow badass she's a mental health advocate and she's also recovering from an eating disorder um and she is just another fellow warrior in this anti-diet movement where we are just fighting for fat activism and health at every size body positivity acceptance and just trauma recovery all things inclusive and um, she's also on the road to becoming a social worker Um, but her story is just magical it's so powerful and I was so blown away by the end of our conversation and I know that you're going to be too so um yeah I'm really not going to keep you waiting a second longer let's dive right on in all right so why don't you start with uh sharing your story and telling us a little bit about yourself Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So my name is Sharon Maxwell. um, And uh, let's see, I grew up in Chicago. So I'm like a big Chicago fan, like sports and um, give me like the deep dish pizza, right? And the magic of the Windy City. Um, And growing up, um, I was raised in an environment where um, like, very close-minded environment, I would say. And just like um, our way was the only way to like do life, right? And part of that was like, there um, isn't anything, um, like mental health isn't real. It's actually just like sin manifesting in people's lives and like things like that. And so um, I grew up actually with 
a few mental health conditions and I believe some other family members had some as well, but we just didn't know about it. Right. So like undiagnosed and um, yeah, so I kind of stepped out of that world four years ago and shortly thereafter, just about a year later, um, I was a teacher, I was living in Arizona and um, my doctor and a few friends sat down with me and they were like, oh, individually, right? Like my primary care and um, sat, sat down with me and she was like, Sharon, like, we've got some issues. <laughs> there are some problems. Your labs are out of control. Um, what are, and started like asking me some pretty direct questions around my behaviors around food. And um, I had only ever answered questions about food with a doctor with so much shame because I've lived in, um, and I use the word fat um, because I'm trying to take away the stigma that society has around the word, but um, I lived, I've lived in a fat body since I was in like the fourth grade. And so um, most of the time my experiences with doctors were pretty traumatic of like fat shaming and like telling me I needed to be smaller and stuff. So I was terrified to answer her questions around behaviors, but I was in like an extremely restrictive um, part of my what I didn't know was, but my eating disorder, along with um, like purging behaviors and compensatory behaviors. And she was like, look, like this is affecting your physical health in huge ways. I believe you have an eating disorder. And I like laughed at her. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, you're kidding. Like, no, I don't have an eating disorder. And I told her all the reasons why I didn't. (laughs) And um, she was like, "Um, why don't you take this paperwork home and just like, look it over, do some research. And I'm going to see you back next week. (laughs) Because um, that was how like important it was for me to seek the medical. I didn't realize how important the mental health help was at that point too, but the medical help as well. And so I went home and I looked over the things and I went back with a list of all the reasons why she was wrong. And I was trying to prove my point that I didn't have an eating disorder. Um, But I did, I was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. Um, It's called in the the DSM, atypical anorexia because of my body size, Um, subtype purging. Um, So she sent me to like an eating disorder treatment center and, um, but they wanted me to quit teaching in the middle of the school. I was towards the end of the school year and go to residential. And I was like, no way. I don't even have an eating disorder. So I like pushed off and would have to go to the um, urgent care to get fluids every once in a while. Um, And then finally in the summer went to like residential for um, treatment. And it was there that I realized like, whoa, I do have an eating disorder. And I started to like, make steps in my recovery um, and like takes away some of the shame from my like background of thinking that like that mental health in in and of itself was shameful and sinful when it's not. And secondly, like the stereotype around my own body and having an eating disorder and my body and having anorexia. Right. (laughs) So there's like a lot there. Um, Yeah. So yeah, that was like, that was, two summers ago. So I've been um, actively pursuing recovery for the last like two years. Um, And um, now I am in school to become a social worker. Um, And 
am, yeah, just like actively trying to fight fat phobia in the healthcare system, in our society at large, um, and just like advocate for mental health um, in general. So those are some broad strokes, just a little bit about me and what I'm passionate about. So yeah, a little bit of my story. Well, I can tell you, your story is just so powerful. And we have I feel like just scratched the surface and I feel like I have so many questions. So as long as you're comfortable and willing, I would love to ask you to dive a little bit more into um, some things about your eating disorder. Now, um, like you, you had said it was considered atypical anorexia nervosa um, Mm -hmm. due to the fact that your body size is not the typical, the quote quote typical that we see when we think of people with, anorexia. We think of, you know, the very thin, the frail, you can see their ribs and everything like that. Um, so do you think that that, that stereotype really played a a role in you having like that reaction to that find out that you had an eating disorder? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, the body tells on you with eating disorders, right? And not always do labs show things. In fact, sometimes This is totally a side note, but sometimes people think they're not sick enough because their labs don't show things. They don't think they're sick enough for treatment. But I had an eating disorder for 20 plus years and my heart didn't care that I was, that I lived in a large body. (laughs) Like it was breaking itself down. Um, and my esophagus didn't care. And like my, my, I mean, there are so many, my hair, my skin, my nails, so many different things. Um, just like it didn't matter that I lived in a larger body, but yeah, the, the, the stereotype for sure um, was a hard thing for me to step past and like into like the acceptance piece, especially when my doctor presented it to me as um, a restrictive eating disorder. And I was like, no, you're supposed to be telling me that I'm too fat and that I need to lose weight. You're supposed to be like, <laughs> it was just so foreign And then for her to say that she thought I had an eating disorder and in my head, you know, I was picturing people who've been like prisoners of war or something and look like, you know, like that stereotype that society has. Um, But yeah, it definitely was something that was hard for me to kind of like step past with the diagnoses. Now, before that time, did you ever like did anything at any point in time ever cross your mind that like you might have an eating disorder? So it's interesting that you ask that. My purging behaviors began when I was in middle school. And that was something that I hid and was, um, I knew wasn't normal. But again, growing up in an environment that didn't believe in mental health issues, that I think also was something that kind of didn't allow me to think of it that way and, or to, to put, to like view it. I knew it wasn't good. Um, and I knew it was something that I had to hide. Um, but also like in the environment I was in, it was, I was, it was a pretty traumatic upbringing. And so like, that was my only piece of control. So no, I didn't think it was an eating disorder. I knew it wasn't okay. And also my mom had like very restrictive behaviors and has a very disordered relationship with food as well. So I think it was kind of normal and kind of both of us just like flailing around a little bit for some type of control in the environment. Yeah. 
But I don't think I would have ever thought that it was an eating disorder. Now, how long after, or what did it look like when she told you you had an eating disorder until you kind of, I don't want to say accepted it, because that might take some time, but really kind of said, okay, maybe she's right. Yeah, um, so she approached me in January um, of 2018, and um i had to stay at uh, where she was they had the ability to like set up ivs and stuff and i had to get fluids i was extremely dehydrated and um she had to see like my blood like she had to see a few things before she would let me leave um or she was going to admit me um to the hospital um and i thought she was just being super dramatic so i took the pamphlets and i took like nita the National Eating Disorder Association has a an assessment and online you can take and it'll tell you whether or not like you should seek treatment. Mm-hmm. And I took it, I took it so many times. And every time I was like, no, this isn't me. And so I didn't end up going um, in, in late February is when I did my intake with um, a treatment center in Phoenix. And then I didn't go until March. Um, That's how much I kept pushing it off. And my doctor had to see me every week. Um, And a couple times she threatened to like put me in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but I was just like, no, like, sure. These aren't okay behaviors, but I don't have an eating disorder. (laughs) Like I was just so, so adamant about, I don't have an eating disorder. (laughs) Mm. And why do you think that that was? Um, Again, I think it goes back to like the stigma around mental health. She presented it as a mental health concern. And so admitting that would admit that I was then like, quote unquote, one of those people that I was told my whole life were like, wrong and evil. And so like that, it being a taboo topic. And secondly, I think that I just, I want to, I think part of me expected to go in there and get like a verbal, like, thrashing you know what I mean like expected her to tell me that I needed to lose weight but she saw that I was losing weight and wasn't okay with it and I think that that to me was like what is wrong with you (laughs) like clearly you are not um (laughs) clearly you're uninformed on what I need you know I think it was just like such a shame deserving of punishment like some really big cognitive distortions for sure (laughs) Yeah. And that's so, I don't even know, interesting because, and you can just see how society and diet culture really just put such a frame around everything, you know, even what we expect our doctors to say when it comes to our bodies, um, you know, and, and how we even expect them to care for us. And I'm actually, you know, it's actually refreshing to hear that your doctor acknowledged what was really going on regardless of your body size, because I feel like there are physicians out there who would have ignored it necessarily or overlooked it because of, you know, the body size piece. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I even had physicians growing up who would congratulate me when I would tell them like, Hey, I'm passing out. Hey, these are my sandwich baggies full of hair that I've lost. Hey, here are my bald spots. Hey, like physicians would say, keep, keep doing what you're doing. Keep losing weight. Good job. Oh my! Like applauding that, like literally just looking at weight as the indicator of health. 
And so many people could have like stepped in so much sooner Mm -hmm. um, in this process. And, and thankfully I had the doctor that I had because she saved my life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You said these behaviors started in middle school. The purging did. Um, But my, my eating disorder behavior started when I was seven. Um, Yeah. That was right around my mom. So my mom had a really disordered relationship with food and um, lost a significant amount of weight in a very short time span and like where she was like gaunt and um, emaciated and just like really not well. And she would, there was only one food item she would eat and she had to juice it in order to eat it. Like she, and that was it. And her body was like shutting down and no one knew what was going on. People were like, oh, you've lost weight. Great job. (laughs) What's happening? She had anorexia, right? Mm -hmm. And so right after that, I started like hoarding food in my room and like hiding it and binging. Um, And so then like weight gain came with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then like, then there was like bullying in school from teachers and classmates. Um, And then that, in the compilation of other things. And then one teacher in middle school who was horrendous bully turned into the, um, the purging behaviors began when I was in middle school. Um, the, well, I guess there were purging behaviors younger than that. Cause I was put on weight watchers, good old weight watchers. I've got a lot of, <laughs> you know, their app they have out for kids. Kerbo. Uh, I shouldn't have even said the name of it. It's <laughs> oh, horrible. It's horrendous. But yeah, um, I began, actually started like laxative abuse when I was in fifth grade. Like, yeah, it just the gamut. Um, and I've gone through like all of the eating disorders um, throughout 20 plus years. So, yeah. So after you found out that, you know, and kind of began to accept that, okay, I have an eating disorder. What did the beginning of recovery look like? Did you tell your family who did you did you have any support what did that look like given like your family dynamic yeah so um I'm actually um close to my extended family is like my is kind of like taking the role of immediate family for me as well as chosen family and so I've been super supported by them Um, my grandpa and my uncle um came out to a treatment center once and like came to like a a family session with me and tried to learn things and ask questions um, and really like surrounded me um, in that. So I've gotten a lot of support from those people. Um, As far as like, what did it look like to like step into recovery? Um, Again, like I was, like I said, I was in residential and I was like really resistant to treatment. Um, and then about, I don't know, probably five or six weeks into my residential stay, I started to, I had a session. I don't remember what the session with my therapist was about, but I remember, um, I hadn't cried in years and years and I just like broke down and realized like, whoa, I have an eating disorder. I have like PTSD. I have these complex problems and this is so much 
how am I going to step out of this? This is what I've been doing and was my normal for 20 years. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of really overwhelming. Um, I think like my first step ultimately was like towards intentional recovery was like that awareness. And then also not standing in judgment of the awareness, like just like that good old DBT skill of radical acceptance um, in those moments of just like, this is what it is. And then like kind of resigning to my treatment with like balancing. I think a lot of times treatment centers, especially when dealing with people who live in larger bodies, it can be hard to balance because you need to advocate for yourself. Unfortunately, there is some fat phobia in um, treatment centers still, but um, uh, so like learning how to like advocate for yourself and yet like resign to your treatment team and like the process was like, really important. And it sounds like ambiguous, but it really was like, what do I need to do? Like that willingness of like, help me was kind of like my first step. Yeah. Now, have you in the last like two years that you've been actively pursuing recovery encountered any backlash about your eating disorder because of your body size? Um, yeah. So I actually recently had to um, explain to a psychiatrist how I could have a restrictive eating disorder and live in the body size that I live in. Um, oh and, my yeah. <laughs> I'm like, are you aware that eating, between eating disorders and the opioid crisis, <laughs> they go back and forth between being the number one killers of people with mental illnesses and you aren't aware of this, and you're a psychiatrist? <laughs> okay, that's what my first thought was, like, not just, like, you know, a classmate or something, like, this is a psychiatrist. Yeah, psychiatrist. Um, I guess I was thinking definitely more in, like, the medical field, explaining to anyone that I have, I shouldn't say anyone, that's a generalization, the majority of people that I have told that I have anorexia I can say eating disorder and people will say oh yeah I've tried to lose weight before too and I'm like no you don't get it um like that's not the goal here <laughs> in fact I will never pursue that intentionally again but like yeah there is a lot of confusion and it's a lot of look our body sizes get to where they are for lots of reasons um yeah like genetics um, trauma, yo-yoing in diet culture, like your natural set weight point grows, studies show, um, like there are just so many pieces and like, I've put my body through so many famines that of course it's going to protect itself by putting more weight around my vital organs, thinking it's going to go into famine again, <laughs> you know? So yeah. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I just, one thing I love about like your story is aside from, you know, helping to really bust through that myth of what eating disorders and specifically anorexia looks like. Um, I just love that it, it kind of sheds a light on the fact that sometimes like a lot of these eating disorders and disordered eating behaviors in general, all on the spectrum uh, at both ends, really do come from a place of, of trying to cope, a place of trying to heal and recover from something that we've experienced in life because I feel like that's a huge piece that so many people just don't even know. They don't, they don't know of it. And a lot of people who may have heard it, they kind of overlook that because of course we don't want to be like, 
oh, I've experienced traumatic things in my life. But truthfully, if you're a human, I feel like most of us, if not all of us, experience some level of trauma. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. 100% with that statement, you know, the whole big T, little T, put it aside, all of us have faced trauma. Um, And yeah, eating disorders definitely have many different roles and functions and things that play into them. But, um, and it's not necessarily a cognitive decision of, oh, I am going to restrict so that I can gain control. But it's just a way that our bodies and brains go, our brains go into what can I do and not every not every eating disorder is about control but that's a strong component you hear Mm -hmm. um, is that I needed a piece of control somewhere and so my body or how much I consumed or how much I worked out that was something that I could control Um, and it is a maladaptive coping skill just like any other behavior that is like a self-harm type behavior and I think that a lot of eating disorder behaviors fit in the category of self-harm as well. Um, not all, but uh, I mean, I don't know of all, but some in particular in my mind, but yeah, there's just like so many different functions for it. Um, for sure. Um, and I, yeah, I think that it, a lot of times it does stem from trauma or environmental situations and there's also one other piece that like some people just like grew up maybe without like food or not always mm-hmm. knowing if they were going to have food. Yeah. So then you have that like scarcity mindset, right? Of Like, am I going to have food again? So then like you have a lot of binging or you have like hoarding food or different things like that because like you're afraid because like of your trauma or like your, your environmental and socioeconomic status played a role into that as well it's so multifaceted and it's interesting and heartbreaking all at the same time yes absolutely absolutely yeah I mean I think a lot of people we want to say like we want food to like just be food but there's so much that goes into it and like yes that is the goal to let food just be food but you know when we find ourselves in these situations where maybe our relationship with food's a little murky we kind of have to look at everything else because it's, it's weird that food's never really the problem when our relationship with food is kind of just not where we want it to be. Yeah. Murky's a good word. <laughs> yeah. And I think that like making that first step being like food is fuel um, and looking at it almost like medicine and recovery can be really powerful because looking at it, anything beyond that can be so terrifying. Uh, but I'm like looking now at, I was just talking with my dietitian on on Tuesday about how can I allow myself to like enjoy this food and like enjoy the process of cooking and like ex- experience pleasure with that and like you know food is can also be a way we show love and it can be a way we connect with people um it's not the only way to connect with people or the only way to express love but like yeah it's so powerful to be able to now like I feel like I've, I'm getting a little bit past the point of it just being fuel sometimes I still have to look at it as that but knowing that like hey I'm able now to like have connection with people and not just be consumed with okay I'm getting this in I'm getting this in and like move on past the meal but like I can sit through a meal more than tolerate it and actually like enjoy my company the people I'm around or sharing that time with people um we live in a culture that 
surrounds everything <laughs> practically every event has has some sort of food it seems like you know yeah yeah absolutely and i love that you point that out like your experience with like almost having to accept that food is fuel first because a lot of us on the are kind of on the opposite end where we find enjoyment in food we like to use food as you know rewards or coping mechanisms and and um you know, celebratory tools and things like that, but then we feel guilty for doing so. Yeah. Sort of the opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of, but there's a place for it both, you know? Like, there are ways to, like, I can celebrate by going out and going on a hike with someone and enjoying nature and, like, celebrate them that way. And then we can sit down and, like, have a picnic and enjoy that food together, you know? I can be sad and eat a container of Ben & Jerry's and then like move on with life. It's not my every day, you know, like, yeah. and, and I'm definitely not there <laughs> yet, but like that, I feel like comes also with just like normalized, I say normalized, cause what is normal, but like intuitive eating, right? Like it's not going to be perfect. It's not calories in and calories out. It's not a thing, <laughs> you know, we're yeah. so much more fluid. Yeah. And, and our, our physical bodies really do want what's best for us. And they do send us a lot of signals that uh, so many things, whether that's diet, culture, society, or trauma in, that we experience in our life kind of just disrupts our ability to hear them. And I think that's where a lot of our relationship with food and body just kind of goes, you know, astray. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's it's a really great point. And it's like what was modeled for us as well. And, you know, all of those different um, factors, it's, there's a lot that plays into it for sure. And it's something that we also have to have for sustenance to survive, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, but yeah, the other things that in our world can be so loud that we can't all, it, it, it can sometimes be hard to go back to listening to our body and like, what does our body need? What does our body want? Yeah. Absolutely. Hmm. So if I remember correctly, you said you're about two years in your recovery. Yeah. So what over two years? Well, yeah. I'm no, I'm like two and a half years into my recovery. What? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So what, um, tell us a little bit about like what recovery for you looks like now. Yeah. Um, so I still meet with my team regularly. Um, and, um, I mean, my eating disorder, I was in my eating disorder for almost 20 years fully. So, um, this is my therapist said once my therapist, at one of my treatment centers was like, you can't walk into a forest for 30 minutes and expect to get out in five um, minutes. Right. So it can be recovery. can be such a long and arduous process. Um, and it's definitely not linear, like just super straight here, start fueling your body start. And now you're done. <laughs> um, but it, it now looks like, um, challenging a lot of my core beliefs and my own internalized fat phobia, my own um, internalized judgments of what I am allowed or not allowed to eat because of 
um, my body size. It looks like exploring movement and not having it be a punishment towards my body or be compensatory, but simply a celebration of what my body can do. Um, that one's a huge one that I'm working on right now. Um, and um, also like I, my therapist and my dietitian are very much a part of that process because um, my relationship with movement my whole life was simply to punish my body or to c compensate for what I had eaten. Um, even if it was something that like diet culture would call quote unquote, like a superfood or like healthy or what have you still c compensating for that. Um, so, um, and then ultimately right now for recovery, like I have this like mantra and sometimes I don't even have to think about it, but if a meal is challenging and, or like the idea of eating that day, I literally take one meal at a time and I leave that meal at the table and try not to make my entire day evolve around like the whole thought process that goes into <laughs> the recovery process, if that makes sense. Like I go to the table, I make the food, I sit down, I eat it, and then I leave it there. Whether I feel like it was a success, whether I feel like it was a failure, <laughs> I leave it there. I get up and I try to continue on with like living and not making my eating disorder, the thoughts or the recovery process, my identity, mm -hmm. um, but also addressing the issues like as they come up, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Kind of where I am with that. Yeah, no, I totally get it. Cause I feel like, and I feel like where a lot of people can kind of relate as like an example of that is where we typically see people getting so consumed with like dieting and trying to lose weight and having the right quote unquote right diet and right combination and et cetera, et cetera, that that's like what motivates their whole day. That's all they're thinking about. And they're just being consumed by it. Yeah. Yeah. And I found that honestly, so for a little spell in my recovery, I turned the whole principles of intuitive eating into a diet in my head, right? Because if you look at the different principles and you look at the, the science behind it, we have a natural set weight point and our bodies, if we're fueling them, the theory is if we're fueling them um, uh, adequately and appropriately, and, you know, we're allowing ourselves the freedom to eat without the stress of all the constraints of diet culture, la, la, la. All of the different, there's 10 principles, and I did, don't quote, I'm not quoting Evelyn Tripoli or Elise Rich here right now, but um, the godfathers or godmothers of intuitive eating, but... Um, the theory is when you do that and you have this relationship with your body, you're going to arrive. Not, I don't say arrive as if you're going to stay there, but you're going to get to a natural set weight point, which is also fluid hormones change. You have a child, you go through a whatever your body can still change, but you get to this place where your body wants to stay in homeostasis. doesn't want to be all over the place. And so I was like, Oh, great, great, great. So I would like convince my dietitians um, from a treatment center or my outpatient, whatever, like, have I lost any weight since being in treatment? Like, just tell me, you don't have to tell me a number. Just tell me, has my weight gone up or down? And I was like, hoping it was going down. And unfortunately I had a dietitian get on that train with me and tell me that my weight had gone down. So then I was like, sweet. I wasn't even eating intuitively. I was like still restricting uh, like several meals and like, <laughs> 
doing these things. And I was like, awesome. So I had this idea that like intuitive eating was going to be my next diet. Like that, not my, and I wouldn't call it a diet because I'm anti-diet culture, <laughs> but like, Hey, if I hold on to this, yeah, my body's going to get small. And like, I have to, I had to grieve like yeah. the ideal in my head that I've always had of what my ideal body size would be. And like, that's something that I don't, I'm definitely not like over that's something you have to like continually I feel like yeah. revisit and stuff but it's just amazing how like intuitive eating can turn into diet culture just like when you're in diets like it's so consuming so that's why I like my dietitian and I decided like let's see if we can take a step back like don't send me every single morsel you put in your mouth don't you know like let's take a step back and like live your values one of your values is recovery but that's not everything about you you are so multifaceted so mm -hmm. like really trying to like find that balance has been powerful yeah yeah it sounds like your recovery is definitely a very powerful journey yeah and i'm not saying it's not always e i'm not saying that it's always easy either <laughs> but sure. yeah yeah so what would you say is the number one thing that's been uh super helpful throughout your recovery you know um i think there are two things that come to mind one is just being open and honest with my treatment team regardless of like just total complete honesty with them has been so helpful because then i'm not impeding my own recovery right and then like, there's a lot of secrecy that can rely, like that can, or shame that can um, reside in that secrecy. Uh, but secondly, it's something that's kind of small and, but huge. Um, when I was in res, I made a friend who's actually um, my best friend to this day. I now live in the same city that she does. Um, like I moved across the country and we live in the same city. Um, but I, uh, in res, our nurse every night would have, when we go take night meds, she would have us um, do an affirmation and she'd have us look in the mirror. And, and the little nurse's station was in a bathroom that was a makeshift nurse, nurse's station. So it was like a master bath almost. And you're looking at yourself in this mirror, but like, I couldn't even look at myself and say an affirmation, like I'm a good person or I'm a good friend. So the nurse's name was Veronica, best human I think I've ever met. So she'd be like, look at me in the mirror. So I'd look at her and I'd say, you know, I am a good friend or something like so basic, right? An affirmation. And then it got to the point where I would look at myself in the mirror and be able to say that affirmation. And Sierra, my best friend, and I would go in every night together to get our meds and we'd do affirmations with her. Well, then she challenged us to not just do like a soul affirmation, like I'm a good person or I can do hard things, but also to include a body affirmation so mm -hmm. even if I'm not like "Ooh, I like my butt like it doesn't have to be like that but it can be like I can appreciate the strength that my legs had today by carrying me through the day or like I'm grateful for my GI system like being um, healing I'm great you know what have you and it can be like I like my curly hair um, but like a body affirmation and now throughout these last two years 
two and a half, whatever it's been. Sierra and I, every night we FaceTime each other. Well, now we live in the same city, so sometimes we're together, but, um, and we do our affirmations every single night together. And we've also mm-hmm. added to that, what are we grateful for today? And then we've also added, what is one recovery win for the day? What's a recovery mm-hmm. mind decision we made today? Because um, oftentimes, like, the eating disorder can beat us up for the little behaviors or whatever that may have happened. But like stepping back and recognizing like, Hey, this is a choice I made today, choosing recovery. And it takes us, well, I mean, sometimes we can get deep, but sometimes it takes us like three, four minutes. You know, we just go through, go back to back, maybe a little, maybe five minutes, but just like that intentional time to like affirm and recognize like that positive mindset and frame there has been so powerful and not only to do it just myself but to see my best friend do it and like watch ourselves grow together in that um has been super powerful i can only imagine i love that i love that yeah Veronica was one of those human beings that would be like, even if we couldn't say it, she'd be like, well, what are you struggling with today? And I'd be like, I'm not going to tell you what I'm struggling with. Just tell me, like, what is your, what is your critic saying to you? Your inner critic. And I'd be like, she was such a, is such a gentle soul and like a safe person. And so we'd be like, oh, this is what my critic is saying. And she's like, well, why don't you just say the opposite of it? Just try, just tell me the opposite of it. And I'd be like, the opposite of like, I am awful, you know, so we'd say it. So sometimes when we do affirmations, we're like, I'm pulling a Veronica. I don't believe it, but I know I need to say it. (laughs) Uh, And yeah. Yeah. That was really a beautiful experience in a very hard time. And something that I think that I will continue to carry throughout my life. Yeah. Hours of affirmations. I love that. I think I'm I'm honestly going to have to adopt that do it yeah I love that I love it so what is one thing that you would tell anybody out there who is thinking you know maybe I have an eating disorder like you know and questioning kind of their behaviors and and not really sure for whatever reason that is whether it's their their body size or they're just you know feeling shame around it whatever that is what piece of advice do you think you would give them I would say that even if you're having those thoughts, you are, um, as Jennifer Gadiani is a doctor, an eating disorder doctor in Colorado, and she has um, a book called Sick Enough. um, And it goes to like the medical complications of an eating disorder, but the whole premise is you are sick enough um, as you are right now, whether you're in like just having disordered eating behaviors or you have an eating, a clinical eating disorder. Um, And so I would just say like, you are sick enough. You are deserving of receiving help. And um, I, when people tell, I've had people tell me um, via Instagram, I've had people have their friends contact me and say, I think I might have this. Or um, I usually direct them to NIDA as well, the National Eating Disorder Association. And like, hey, uh, this first step, just take this assessment. It's not the end all be all but take it and they'll also like help you find resources near you. And like, you are worthy of getting help. You are worthy of having a healed relationship with your body and with food. You deserve that freedom. Um, I believe each and every one of us do. I believe everybody has work we can do 
towards our relationship with our body and with food. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you're sick enough. I think sometimes people are like, Oh, it's not bad enough. But like, why wait until 20 years down the road when your heart's breaking down? It's not necessary. <laughs> uh, yes. I love that. You're right. Absolutely. Mm. Well, I thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah. Thanks so much for inviting me to. And yeah, I'm super grateful for this experience. Absolutely. But I do have one more question before I let you go. So everybody that comes on the podcast and shares their story, I'd like to ask them one question. So the name of the podcast is taking up space, but I would love to know what is your definition of taking up space? Ooh, taking up space. I think that if I am to take up space, then I am approaching my day, my time, my existence, what have you, with um, without judgment and fully being present and allowing myself a voice, allowing myself compassion um, and giving myself compassion to speak, um, to... Um, just like be to exist and to be and to really like not just like be in a space but like to make it known like I am like let my being be present and be there like in that space not like I'm narcissistically like taking up the space and like in other taking away from other people but adding to the room in my existence I think and like really being present there um because we each have we're each incredible beings who can gift the rest of the world with our presence. I think that's beautiful. I love that. Thanks. I like that question. <laughs> Thanks. So tell everybody where they can come uh, find you and hang out with you because they're going to want you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my Instagram is my most active social media platform. Um, and I am at Hey Sharon, only one R. Maxwell at, at Hey Sharon Maxwell. Um, also, I have a website. Um, I do some speaking on mental health and stuff, and that is um, Hey Sharon Maxwell.com. Um, so S H A R O N M A X W E L L. Perfect. And I will link those in the show notes too, so they can just click away. Thanks. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Amanda. Yeah. Hey guys, thanks for joining me on another episode of Taking Up Space, the podcast. And if you're loving these episodes as much as I am, please, the best thing that you can do to show your love and appreciation is to share the podcast episodes with those that mean the most to you, with those that you feel would appreciate and get something so beneficial out of these episodes because that is the sole purpose is to reach as many people as we can and to help affect and change so many lives for the better. So I love that you were here with me and until next time, guys, bye.